Welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Jan Orman. In this podcast series, we've invited people we know and admire to tell you their stories. My name's Paula Kotovich. So my name is Craig Sample. Evie Rader. Molly Shorthouse. My name's Percy Knight. I was a career detective in the New South Wales Police Force. I identify as a trans woman. I am a remote doctor in East Arnhem Land. These are people who may not have made the headlines, but whose stories are just as worthy of your attention as those you hear about in the media. Living with cancer. I was struggling with PTSD for eight or nine years. I just had a lot of fear. I was well and truly burnt out. These are people who have flourished and met life's challenges while managing their social and emotional well-being. Uh, my career now uh, is as a mental health advocate and educator. I led a team that negotiated a $22 million native title. It definitely taught me in my life a lot of persistence and given me a lot of strength. We're hoping you'll find something in these stories to inspire you, whatever your situation right now. I'd like to introduce you to Ali Nikolopoulos. Ali didn't get it easy when she first started work as a psychologist. Add to that problem she had with her own mental health and you have a recipe for real trouble. Help seeking wasn't very successful either. She got more and more unwell and decided she never wanted to work in clinical psychology again. Ali is now a postdoctoral researcher at Black Dog Institute. She's got quite a lot to say about what we need to do to support our mental health. Advice coming not just from her own theoretical knowledge, but from her own significant life experience. Ali's research area is suicide, especially suicide in young people. She's really keen to reduce the suicide rate in adolescents by asking young people what they need and how they think we can help them. So far, it looks like adolescents are different from adults when it comes to suicide. When you listen to Ali, you'll get a clear sense of what makes her tick and understand why we wanted you to hear her story. You'll also hear a lot about her enthusiasm for exercise as a way of managing depression. Uh, my name is Ali Nikolopoulos. I'm 32 years old. Um, I am a postdoctoral fellow at the Black Dog Institute. I work in suicide prevention um, and a hobby of mine, I am a boxer. I first became interested in working in mental health uh, probably as a young kid. Um, I always wanted to be a teacher and or a school counsellor. Um, and I think that was because I had all my own issues going on throughout my childhood that I just wanted to, I, I, I was just always destined to be in a helping profession, I think. There's different routes that you can go through um, to become a psychologist. So there's the, you do your four years with your honours and then you can either do a four plus two internship or do a master's program. Um, I opted to do the, to do the four plus two, um, probably one of my biggest regrets in my life so far. Um, should have done the master's, but the reason I did the four plus two was because I was living in a rural town called Walgett, um, which is a population of about 2000 in Northwest New South Wales. Um, and I got offered a really, really good paid position that I couldn't turn down, essentially. My partner at the time was out at Walgett. I had done my honours year at Coffs Harbour, so I just wanted to get back. Um, and so I got offered one of those four plus two internships um, in an NGO. Um, and being rural, 
was absolutely impossible for supervision. So in terms of having a supervision process for the four plus two, um, back then it was one hour for every 17.5 hours that you had to have one-on-one contact and then have you know, supervision processes in place aside from that. So essentially I should have seen someone for at least two hours every full working week when I was working as a provisional psych. Um, I think so for, I was in Walgett working in that position for nine months in between Walgett and Dubbo. I saw my supervisor twice. And so I went with the same organisation to Orange where I thought, okay, I think it's like a 70,000 population maybe. This will be a bit better. Um... And it would have been an incredible process, except that the NGO and the governing people in the NGO and my manager in the NGO had no idea about how to effectively manage an intern psychologist. So basically, I I was thrown in to extremely complex cases. I was working with extremely complex mental health um, and I just completely burnt out. I spent like my evenings trying to make sure that I was ready for the next day because I was just teaching myself basically. Um, So that was my first year and a bit. After the end of that period, I decided that I needed to seek psychological help in my own way, found that the psychologists that I tried to interact with were just as unhelpful as my supervisors had been. So it completely made me never want to practice psychology again. Um, and so the stress of not being able to like put on this, everything's fine, um, was not enough for me to be able to get the energy to get myself out of bed. So I was like, I've got to do something. Like I've got to do something. And I remember just being like ridiculously suicidal, getting in my car, driving up to South Stradbroke Island. And I don't know why South Str- I'd never heard of South Stradbroke Island before. <laughs> But it was just somewhere that I'd never heard of before and that I could just go. And something interesting happened on the way up there, actually. So I went up there and for some reason, one of my girlfriends who I used to work with in Walgett, um, I rang her. I hadn't spoken to anyone. And I rang her and I was just like, can I just drop in on the way? And I did. Um, she's got two young boys and a husband and we were like really good family friends slash friends when we lived in Walgett. Um, and I just went in there and she was like, like we were talking and I was doing my whole like normal alley thing. And then she just, we, her, her husband took the kids away and her and I went into the lounge room and had a chat. She's like, what's going on? She's like, and, and, and then I just lost it. I just burst into tears. I don't cry in front of people often. Um, but well, I didn't back then. Now I cry all the time. Um, but... She was the first person ever in my life to ask me if I was suicidal and I would like I just was so surprised and and all I could say back to her was yes yes I am um and then that triggered like a whole I don't know for some reason I felt in that moment that I I don't know I just felt a shift like I felt a shift and um and this is talk like I had a suicide attempt when I was 19. So this is not something new for me, but I think it's some something new for someone to just say that thing. Anyway, so I still drove up to South Stradbroke Island. I spent four days there um, and I just like sat on a beach and cried. It was amazing. It was so good. It was hard, but it was good. And then I was online. I'm like, okay, 
So now you can get your stuff together. Like, you know, you know that you're, something's going to happen. You've got to get your life together, right? And so I had always wanted to go into research coming out of my honours year. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to realise that perhaps the clinical stuff wasn't for me, wasn't ever for me, even though it's something that, you know, innately I'd wanted to do since I was little. Um, And maybe I do need to go back to research. But I also didn't want it to be a research project that wasn't meaningful to me, especially after that little like whirlwind week that I'd just had. So I went online and I, I typed in, I think I typed in like to Google research suicide and this Black Dog Institute scholarship popped up and I was like, it was literally perfect. It was perfect. It was, you know, working with young people, which is something I've always done and always wanted to do. Um, working with Indigenous young people, um, if 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 it, the project allowed it to, to go in that direction, working in suicide prevention, rah, rah. And then I saw underneath that it, the application closed two weeks ago. So I was like, no, nah, I'm going to back myself. I'm just going to message these people anyway. Um, I don't know. I just had a feeling... And so I messaged, um, it was, her name was Carolina. She was here at the time, the CRESP co- coordinator. And um, she, I emailed her and she emailed me within 20 minutes back, I think. Um, and she was like, can you get me an application by tomorrow, 4 p.m.? And I was like, yes, yes, I can. And so this was like me trying to get a resume together, get a cover letter together, get myself out of my (laughs) pyjamas like it was anyway um so I did and I got all that application together and the application was the like the the cover letter was the most honest thing I've ever written like I'd love to see if they still have it because it's just like it wasn't it wasn't a professional cover letter by any means it was just a really personally driven like I need to do this like this has come at a time this opportunity wouldn't be here, you know. Um, and then, yeah. And then, so then I got a Skype interview a couple of days later. Um, and it was the best interview ever. Like, that was so lovely. Um, and then I remember it was on a Thursday. And then the next day was Australia Day, which was the Friday. And so I was like, I'm not going to hear from them. Whole weekend of self-doubt. I'm not going to get it. They're not going to want me. I'm crap. Rah, rah, rah. And then I got it. And now I'm here on the other side of it. <laughs> um, so for the last four years, I've been doing a PhD at Black Dog. And my PhD focused um, on the motivations for suicide attempts among an adolescent and young adult population. Uh, So basically, it came about because we did a massive review on all of the literature around motivations for suicide in young people. Um, And we found that the majority of the prevention and intervention efforts that are going into um, youth suicide have actually been informed by quantitative research, which is um, a lot of, you know, surveys and um, a lot of stuff that's quantifiable, yeah. Um, and I thought, well, why haven't why haven't many people actually asked these kids, you know, to tell them in their own words what's going on? Um, because sometimes kids just don't understand what this... Uh, I've worked with kids that don't understand what anxiety means. They don't understand, you know, um, some terminology or whatnot. So... 
anyway, I did a big, big investigation on the research which has allowed young people to have their voice and to tell their story and realise that, you know, over a 20-year period, I think 17 research studies had allowed young people to just tell their story. Um, and of those 17 studies, I th- nine of them were not of good quality, essentially, in terms of, a, a, you know, a quality assessment checklist that we use, which is a validated checklist. Um, and so I just thought, you know, if that's what's going on and we don't – these stories are not what are informing our prevention and intervention methods, then we need to collect these stories and we need to do it well for it to be, you know, valid and for it to be taken um, into account. And so that's what I did. I collected stories of young people who had attempted suicide um, and did find quite a big discrepancy. I, I, I only had seven young people um, that, and that's for a range of reasons. We did have a lot more interested, but things like ethics and, you know, being able to have young people involved was really, really tough. Um, but within those seven people, we got so much data. My other average interview was an hour 24 and I had prepared to have 15 to 30 minute interviews so kids want to talk um and they did talk and yeah like I said there was quite a few discrepancies between um what it is that we know what our psychological models of suicide say um and what kids are telling us is going on for them generally the findings of the research were that um the the psychological models of suicide depict a kind of risk ideation uh, risk ideation attempt trajectory um which is basically that you have your risk factors for suicide then you go through an ideation phase so that is the result of you know an intrapersonal inability to be able to deal with the risk factors that are going on um and then that while you're thinking about suicide paired with the capability and or the desire for suicide will result in a suicide attempt and so there's a very clear risk ideation attempt trajectory there Uh, but what we found with the young people was essentially in the majority of the cases there wasn't it wasn't so clear-cut there was a lot more diversity in that trajectory and it could have gone from a risk factor right to the attempt phase without a huge ideation phase which then um it kind of makes it hard to be able to assess. We always talk about risk factors, risk factors, risk factors, or um, getting in, you know, prevention, early prevention or early intervention during an ideation phase. But if these young people aren't having ideation phases, then what are we actually targeting? We need to build more on on targeting the risk factors. So, you know, getting in early with the risk, super early intervention, uh, super early prevention rather than early intervention in young populations because early intervention, based on my sample, isn't going to work. You, you can't intervene when something is progressing so rapidly. I think e-mental health tools, especially when you're talking about young populations, is so imperative I um the thing that I struggle with is and and this again is opinion um is evidence versus non-evidence so I think that it's you know I remember as a kid being suicidal myself and and being like I want to kill myself um what do I do and and having stuff come up forums that like encouraged like it was the first thing that came up in Google, right? Um, and so, as an impression, and as an impressionable kid, I was like, okay, cool. Like, there's other people like me, and you just you just delve into this like field of misery, and it, it's still like that. It's still like that today. Um, 
And I think that holistically we need to figure out a way to make this this thing that we've got, which is so accessible and we're always accessing it and young people are always accessing it, we need the first port of call to be evidence-based stuff. We need the first port of port of call to be helpful stuff. We need the first port of call to be stuff that is, you know, proven and that is going to be helpful. And I think there's so much stuff out there that's not helpful. Um, I'm working, the project that I'm working on at the moment um, is bullying to prevent, targeting bullying to prevent suicide and the amount of bullying interventions that are out there that do not come from an evidence base is obscene the amount of apps that are out there for young people to be able to access which would be so helpful if they had the right information in them but there's no one mandating that process therefore I feel like the e-mental health stuff is such a good idea but we have so far to go in terms of making sure that accessing it um, is done the right way and the right information is provided. Um, so in terms of improvements for e-mental health, the academic stuff <laughs> is a bit hard for me because I am someone who is going to go out there and make sure that I'm talking, talking to a target audience. So all this cool research stuff that I'm doing, sitting in a journal that is, you know, targeted at people who are scientists is not going to get to the young people or the teachers of the young people or the parents of the young people, I think we need to figure out a way to make our scientific stuff, which is really, really fantastic and all of the evidence that we collect, accessible to the right populations. Um, something that I struggle with myself in terms of publishing, obviously being an academic, you want to publish, publish, publish. And for me, the high-rating journals are never, ever going to want kids' stories but why not? When you're talking about a suicidal, suicide journal that wants suicide stories when every single suicide is different, of course you want the stories, but no, it, it doesn't account for that. So what I do to manage my mental health is I exercise, um, most would say obsessively and excessively, but that's okay because it works for me. Um, it's actually interesting. I just want to clarify that the boxing, so many people are like, oh, so it's a really good way to get your aggression out. That is a load of rubbish. You can't be a fighter and a boxer and be aggressive because that's not what boxing's about. I know that it sounds really like really not like counterintuitive, especially when I work in an institute full of academics who are like, you're, you're giving yourself head injuries and you're doing this and you're doing that. I'm like, you know what? I think depression and being that down is much more of a head injury <laughs> than going out and risking potentially maybe 2% chance of getting hit in the head when I could just have a car accident and the same thing could happen. So I've been boxing training, like doing boxercise classes for about seven years. Um, I first started, yeah, back in 2012 in Coffs Harbour and then um, just got obsessed with it. Started teaching it when I went back to Walgett. Like it was fun. I loved it. Um, have always loved it. Have always done it. 
have always been good at it and then decided to get into a boxing ring, thinking that being good at boxer size meant that you'd be good at boxing. Um, they're very, very different things. Um, the reason I decided to get into um, the boxing ring for a fight was um, – so actually I, I needed a challenge. Like I said, when things aren't going too well for me, I throw myself into something. So this was something, just a 12-week thing that I signed up for. The corporate fighter event was the event um, that, I, that I signed up for and I thought that it would be nice um, to see if they would maybe want to partner with Black Dog Institute to bring Black Dog Institute on as the charity for that event. Um, so Corporate Fighter, they do a 12-week um, training camp and then an event for a different charity every, every quarter. They, they agreed. They, they thought that it would be really, really good cause um, and we got that happening. And then um, I got one of my good mates Lara on board she also works for Black Dog and we got in the ring and it was awesome um I got absolutely smashed (laughs) and like it was one of those it was one of those really humbling moments in life because I was like I've got this like I'm too like they had to bring an external girl in to fight me because I couldn't fight any of the girls because I was too strong right so I was like I got this like I am fantastic like you know I no one can beat me because they're not even like they've got to get someone external in for me and then they bring us in this girl who's got like so much experience I remember watching the video out the back and she came in and she bloody bowed in every corner as she like and I was like oh my gosh she's done this before so I got out and and I was like, oh, yeah, I can just brawl her and punch her. Nah, second round, I was done. I got smashed, annihilated, and it was awesome. It was so good. It was the most humbling experience ever. Um, never been more glad to lose. Actually, never been happy to lose ever, but now I am. That was, that was awesome. Um, yeah, so I can't tell you exact figure of how much we raised, but I think it was close to 148,000-ish. So that was in six months um, of that relationship between Black Dog Institute and um, the Corporate Fight Gym and the Corporate Fighter Program, which is incredible. It was so nice. I got to get up there and make a speech about mental health and, you know, like identifying with the fact that we were there fighting, but every day people fight other battles. And it was so cool to be able to bring, like I got up there and half of actually I'd say all of the people that I had been in an intensive 12 week training program with who thought I was like the happiest most like vivacious bubbly person in the world which I am when I got up there and was like uh also got depression they were like whoa and so many people came up to me after that like that night which is probably another reason why I was so happy with the loss was so many people came up to me with their own stories and with their own kind of you know, ability to be able to talk just because someone who was standing up there with big muscles who can punch hard got up and said, you know what, all this external stuff doesn't mean anything because we've all got a brain that can suffer. Um, and that was so cool to bring those two things together because there's such – a lot of people have also said a boxing event and a mental health institute, how does it work? But actually it works really well. I am have been and probably – always will be um, an advocate for exercise to target mental health. I think that exercise should be a prescription for mental health. Um, I'm not sure how people take that and I can't, I'm not 
professionally inclined to say that, but I think I can definitely speak from my personal experience that, you know, even on the days when I'm feeling absolutely awful, the day that I'm feeling awful that I drag myself up and take myself for a walk on the beach is completely different from the day that I feel awful and I don't. I wake up feeling different the next morning. I can eat after I've done that. Like it, it does so much for just being, and that's just a walk. And I'm someone who intensively, intensely exercises a lot. Just a walk can completely change my my mindset. And the thing is, I, I feel like we've, we may have overdone it a bit in terms of, you know, we've got a lot of people out there, a lot of, I don't know, Instagram influencers or whatever, that will tell you that, um, you know, just get out and go for a run and lift some weights and do this and do that. I'm sorry, but someone who is depressed is not going to get out and go for a run. And it should be that we're encouraging you to get out of your bed and walk to the kitchen and make yourself a cup of tea. And if that's all the exercise that you can do, if that's going to make you feel better and if we can give you evidence that that's going to make you feel better, then that's all you need to do. But I feel like it's at the moment maybe, and this is maybe just the circles I run in, but I, I feel like it's um, one extreme or the other. You either exercise or you don't, which is ridiculous because what exercise means to you means something completely different to me, especially dependent on what mental state I'm in. I want to thank Ali for sharing her story. I also want to say that it concerns me that Ali, when she was feeling suicidal, was allowed to go off on her own for a few days. What was good for Ali is not necessarily good for everyone. The recommendation is that if someone is suicidal, they should not be left on their own. My second point is that it is actually easy to find e-mental health resources if you know where to go. The best place to go is the Australian Federal Government's portal to all things e-mental health. The website is called Head to Health, and that's a place that everyone should know about. Thank you for listening. If there's been anything in this podcast that you found distressing, don't forget to talk to your usual support person or call Lifeline on 131114. And if you'd like to hear more in the Being Well podcast series, you can find it on the Black Dog Institute website.